Welcome to the Building the Elite Podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. During my first few weeks at the Naval Special Warfare Center in Coronado, I was hanging out with a Bud student who lived next door to me and had just graduated. He was clearing out his room, getting ready to move out. As he passed me random pieces of extra gear, he relayed whatever advice he could think of that would help me once my SWIC selection course started. The most important thing here, he said, is that it doesn't matter. Nothing really matters. All the guys who stress themselves out and scream that everything is serious and really important and try to order everyone around usually go away. The evolutions are all scheduled. They have a set start and stop time, and the only objective is that you keep going. Just try not to draw negative attention to yourself, put out, and don't quit. He said that there were guys who spent the entire weekend in their barracks, cleaning things for their Monday room inspection, or anxiously trying to optimize their sleep schedule to get as much rest as possible, but it was all futile. The room inspections were meant to be failed. You just had to show enough effort to make it look like you tried. Five extra hours of polishing didn't save anybody from hitting the surf in their freshly pressed uniforms. A lot of the guys who tried to beat the game by having the shiniest boots or the cleanest room eventually broke down and went away. I heard these ideas, and I tried to mentally put them into practice, but it took me a long time to truly understand them. At first, they were just words that I could say, like reading the instructions for how to ride a bike in a pamphlet, but never actually touching the pedals. As the physicist Richard Feynman wrote, You can know the name of a bird in all the languages of the world, but when you're finished, you'll know absolutely nothing whatever about the bird. I learned very early the difference between knowing the name of something and knowing something. We only really understand something once we've lived it. For instance, there isn't a word in the English language that describes what it feels like to be shocked by electricity. You end up just using the word itself in the description. Being shocked feels like being shocked. It's different than being burned, pinched, or stung by a bee, but it's hard to say exactly how. You don't understand the word until you've had an experience that gives it meaning. The same thing could be said about many things. We can read or hear all we want about being in pain, feeling heartbreak or triumph or joy, or being in love. But until we've felt those things for ourselves, they're just words. To leave them unlived is like pretending to know what a meal tastes like when all you've done is read the description of it on a menu. So, as a young student in the selection pipeline hearing this advice, I only knew the name of this concept, that it doesn't matter. To understand the idea, I had to experience it myself. At this point, I had been in the Navy for about a year and a half, and I had gotten really good at suffering. As we've covered elsewhere, I grew up in a rural small town and never learned how to swim. After I had enlisted during my senior year of high school, I would sometimes make the 90-mile drive to the nearest grown-up-sized swimming pool and try to teach myself, but I didn't have much success. I'd always been pretty good at picking up athletic skills, so I figured, how hard could it be? So, with the reality-defying confidence of a 17-year-old male brain, I assumed I'd just figure it out. The way it worked back then was that during the first week of Navy boot camp, on the same day you take your basic swim test, 
You're shown a series of four videos about each of the special programs available to volunteers. Along with a handful of others, I raised my hand, put my name on a list, and volunteered for selection. The first step was to take the screening test. Shortly thereafter, I was sitting, shivering, on a small blue tile in a muggy, chlorine-scented locker room, amongst rows of other candidates. It wasn't cold. I was shaking because I was scared. On command, we filed out of the room, holding up either one finger or two fingers to designate which pool we were to line up in front of. Our stress response in a given situation is based on our perception of two variables, predictability and control. Basically, our brains assess whether we know what's about to happen and then whether we have the ability to handle whatever might be within that range of possibilities. The greater our sense of predictability and control, the more our stress response shifts towards challenge. In a challenge response, we know that even though what we're about to do might be difficult, we can handle it. People who experience a state of flow doing something that they love at the edge of their ability are driven by a challenge response. If what we're facing seems unpredictable, unmanageable, or both, then our stress response is one of threat. In a threat response, we're not trying to perform, learn, or succeed. We're just trying to survive. Either response requires a high level of sympathetic tone from our autonomic nervous systems. This is the basis of what is commonly known as our fight or flight response. Parasympathetic tone, in contrast, drives our rest and digest systems. This gets complicated because, contrary to popular belief, these two drives don't just move in opposition to one another like a seesaw. Either one can increase, decrease, or stay the same independent of the other. People who are good at regulating their stress response while doing hard things are very good at this. You could think of it this way, the autonomic nervous system, broken down into sympathetic and parasympathetic branches, drives the magnitude of the stress response. But from there, or alongside that, the quality of the stress response is modulated by our perceptions of predictability and control. And that plays out in our bloodstream, in the form of things like adrenaline, noradrenaline, and cortisol. A threat response is dominated by adrenaline and cortisol. You feel it more in your body, and you probably won't be able to think very clearly if you're in the middle of a big adrenaline rush. A challenge response, in contrast, is driven by relatively more noradrenaline. You'll feel focused mentally as well as physically. A challenge response is pretty precise in time. We ramp up to engage with the situation, and then quickly return back to a calm, restorative baseline. A threat response, in contrast, is more of a shotgun approach. Even after the threat has passed, the cortisol lingers. It's harder to relax, sleep, and recover following a threat response because it tends to stick with us. So, back to me in Navy boot camp, filing out of that locker room about to take my screen test, shaking with nervousness even though I wasn't the least bit cold. That was a threat response. I kind of knew what I was about to do, but I'd never actually experienced any of it. I didn't know what the instructors would act like, how cold the water would be, what the pool looked like, or what it would feel like once I got started. And I definitely wasn't confident in my ability to handle whatever was about to happen. I was pretty sure that without some kind of miracle, the swim was just going to be a painful embarrassment. 
Walking out to the pool, I was so nervous and flooded with adrenaline that I wanted to throw up. The next six years of my life depended on my ability to pass that test, and I was unprepared. We tried to space out in the crowded pool and pushed off the wall at the whistle. Two or three laps later, choking and sputtering, I felt a hand tap me on the shoulder as I reached the wall to turn around. You, out of the water, you're not going to make it. You've still got some time to catch stroke development, so if you want to continue, head to that pool down there and pay attention. I had failed so quickly that they had barely started the swimming lessons that were happening on the other side of the facility, so that became my new strategy. Stroke development was being led by an explosive ordnance disposal chief named Ferris. He spoke calmly but emphatically, as if he was already exasperated with us. Sort of like when American tourists try speaking more slowly and loudly to people who don't understand English. Hold your hand up over your head like this. Now bend your hand like this, and pull your arm down like this. There, you just learned half the side stroke. I could teach combat side stroke to a monkey in 30 minutes. Now enter the water. I didn't learn as fast as Chief Ferris's monkey, but I had a few more chances to practice with him, and on my third and final attempt, I passed the screen test by several seconds. From there, I began attending mandatory special programs workouts, which began promptly at 3.45 each morning. Most of the time, these workouts were in the gym or around the base, either on long runs or at a strip of beach on Lake Michigan where we would do calisthenics and try to avoid low crawling through dead fish, with the exception of Wednesday. Wednesday was always pool day. Occasionally, I would be encouraged by the appearance of a new trainee who swam slower than me, and drew the attention of the instructors, and that would let me relax into the relative comfort of oblivion. But this was always short-lived because all of those people would quit within a week or two and never be seen again, and I'd regain my title as the worst swimmer in the pool. One of the first pool days set the stage for what my life was going to be like. It was winter in Chicago, and the doors outside had been opened. After the warm-up in the gym, we lined up on the edge of the pool— the cold outside air had rushed in through the open doors and mixed with the warm humidity inside, which created a thick fog. Above the fog, in a lifeguard chair, was Instructor Cassidy, a SEAL instructor. At this point, the farthest I had swum nonstop in my life was a thousand meters. I had only passed the screen test, with its 500-yard swim, a few weeks prior. Instructor Cassidy explained the warm-up. 2,000-meter side stroke. First group, enter the water. Bust them. At that moment, I would have given almost anything to avoid getting in that water. At Cassidy's call of bust them, we pushed off the wall and started swimming. The next group entered the water right behind us. The person behind me passed me in the water by the end of the first lap or two. It was impossible to swim smoothly with the number of people fighting past each other in the narrow lanes, and the water was a chaotic tangle of kicks and collisions. I soon fell to the back of the pack. When the swim was finally over, I dragged myself out of the water, heaving and exhausted. We were all lining up single file at the side of the pool as Instructor Cassidy explained the next portion of the workout. We were to enter the water one at a time at the far end of the pool and sprint freestyle to the end, then duck under the lane rope, sprint back, repeating the process until we had swam every lane. Each time we were passed, we had to get out and do 10 push-ups and then get back in. That was going to be a lot of push-ups. That was a small problem, 
but only the first problem. The second problem, the only stroke I had learned to swim at this point was combat side stroke. I couldn't really swim freestyle at all. I did my best to fake it, which mostly worked out to a sort of alternating side stroke pattern. This was excruciating. And as we swam, I was passed constantly. Under the fog, exhausted students were pulling themselves out of the water and hurriedly diving back in like trained sea lions between sets of push-ups. And the constant collisions this produced made the pool seem more like an underwater rugby match than a swim. I did countless push-ups, and my arms and chest were just about useless. I was the last one to exit the pool, and standing upright required a good deal of effort. Somebody did something to annoy Instructor Cassidy, and we were dropped for push-ups, flutter kicks, and eight counts. A student stopped doing eight counts to throw up in the pool drain. Cassidy bellowed from his chair, You don't want to put out? You don't think you need to be here? Do you people have any idea what is getting ready for you? Do it again. First man. Enter the water. Bust them. The only thought I could keep in my head as I swam was that each stroke brought me closer to being done. There was no way this could continue much longer, or so I reasoned. This, I would eventually learn, is one of the ways that soft selection can break you. You give yourself hope, and you tell yourself that it will all be over soon. That's usually when the light at the end of the tunnel turns out to be a train. Cassidy was in full form, yelling and threatening anyone who drew his attention from his lifeguard chair. I finished again and got out of the pool, crawling on my hands and knees for a bit before bringing myself to my feet at the very back of the pack. I didn't hear much of what Cassidy had been saying to the trainees as they formed up, but I figured it was probably the final words before the workout ended. It was about the time that we'd normally finish, if not even a little past then. First man, enter the water. Bust him. By the middle of this series, I could no longer swim with continuous effort. It was more of a sequence of fitful strokes punctuated by choking and sinking. Halfway down the last lap, I blinked and reopened my eyes to find myself drifting under the water. I snapped back into consciousness and kicked to the surface, and then <laughs> struggle-bust my way to the end of the lane. I hung onto the edge of the pool and tried unsuccessfully to lift myself out, but I didn't have enough strength left. Two guys stepped out of line to grab me by the wrists and pulled me out of the water. I slid on my belly like a beached orca, pulled my knees underneath myself, and then finally got up and staggered to the back of the line. Get out of here. We were done and started filing out of the pool back to the gym. Instructor Cassidy stopped me as I walked past. You. You need to pick it up. You're way behind the power curve. I tried to slow my breathing well enough to speak and told Instructor Cassidy that I'd just learned to swim and swore that I'd get better. I did get better. However, I didn't so much learn to swim better as I became more aerobically fit so that I could sustain terrible swimming technique for longer. I was hitting the swim times and distances, but only through sheer effort. I dreaded every day in the pool. The threat-based stress response never went away, and I felt like any new day could finally be the one to break me. A lot of nights I'd feel sick to my stomach, on the brink of vomiting, just thinking about what was waiting for me in the morning. But I promised myself that the only way I was leaving the course was on a stretcher, so I kept going. In the absence of good swimming technique, I adapted in my own ways. I learned to be comfortable in the water. Aside from the absurdly high physical effort that I put into swimming like an idiot, I could stay mentally calm no matter what was going on. My stress response was changing, but only partially. I had a decent sense of how bad things could get in the water, and aside from a few brief blackouts early on before I'd learned to be comfortable, 
I knew that I could handle any of it without panicking or drowning, so I could control at least that much of the situation. The problem was that I still struggled to hit the times. I was killing myself with effort, and I was still too slow. About a year after that intro to misery workout in the pool with instructor Cassidy, I was two weeks away from graduating basic crewman training with my SWIC class in Coronado, the selection portion of the course. My swim buddy and I failed a timed swim. It was in open water in the bay, wearing our uniform and boots. We had 45 minutes to make the cutoff, and we came in at 46.02. We were rolled out of class. Fortunately, though, we weren't done. Getting rolled isn't the same thing as getting dropped. We just had to start over. The 13 of the original 50 students who started the class graduated shortly after. My swim buddy and I became part of an experiment, and they placed us in the brown shirt rollback program. We were privileged to be accepted into the brown shirts. It's a BUDS program, normally only open to guys in SEAL training, also known as BUDS, who get rolled after they have passed Hell Week. We were the first SWIC students permitted into the program. The program at the time was run by two SEAL instructors named Chief Nave and Master Chief Wilbanks. As a brown shirt, you did whatever timed evolution any of the three phases was doing that day, plus two or three more workouts of Nave's creation. I remember looking at my schedule our first week there, and it just didn't seem possible. Monday might be a four-mile timed run in soft sand on the beach, and then a 90-minute conditioning swim where we'd cover about two miles, and then a ground-based strength workout, and then a rope climb, dips, and pull-up workout. Tuesday would be a two-mile open ocean swim, a ruck run to the other side of the base, and then a workout of plyometrics, sprints, buddy drags, and exercises with Chief Nave's giant kettlebells. All of it was back-to-back, and importantly, all of it was max effort. We were in the water every day. If we weren't swimming in the ocean, we were busting out sprints in the pool. Either way, it was always around two miles in the water. The pool workouts were supervised by a man named Instructor Giesel. He was a genius at coaching swim technique. And after watching me and my swim buddy on our first day in the program, he was able to pick apart our strokes and give us a bunch of specific things to improve on. This was a major change from the coaching on swimming I'd gotten from instructors in the past, which could all be summed up with the words, just put out more, or just try harder. One of Giesel's favorite workouts was to have us swim 10 100-meter sprints on two-minute intervals. This meant that if you swam the 100 in a minute 45, you would get 15 seconds rest before you had to take off for the next 100. If you swam slower, you got less rest and left at the same time. The fastest guys swam that in about 130 or 135 and had plenty of rest. It was still a tough workout for them. My first lap, the first time I did it, I swam it in a minute and 58 seconds. I had two seconds of rest. The next lap, I was more fatigued and I came in at two minutes flat. No rest, just turn and sprint back. The entire workout, I sprinted every lap and hit the wall just as everyone else was leaving for the next one. It was a thousand meter sprint. Giesel came over to me afterward and said that the only good thing he could say was that I never quit swimming or putting out. The technique, he promised, would come. Ropes and buddy drags were other Chief Nave classics. We would race up 30-foot ropes over and over until we could barely grip the rope. Then it would be time for pull-ups. I had never feared a pull-up bar before brown shirt land. We would do sets of 8 to 12 until people could no longer keep their hands closed over the bar. Guys would fall off and jump back up and try to hook their elbows or wrists around the bar in order to hang on and finish. 
If you didn't finish, you would be punished. Usually, you'd have to sprint over the sand berm to the ocean, get wet, sprint back, roll down the berm in order to cover yourself completely with sand, and then wait for your next turn at pull-ups while in the push-up position. It was all in good fun, really. And then onto the dip station, which was the same deal. We'd go until we couldn't hold ourselves up anymore, and then somehow figure out how to do a few more. I'll never forget the sound of Nave's voice anytime someone fell off. Get up there. That was almost all he ever said. He was always professional and kind of laid back. He knew how hard it was, he just didn't care. And we all respected that. Buddy drags may have been Nave's most evil creation. Brown shirts at the schoolhouse were distinctive because we wore special belts called riggers belts, made out of two-inch double nylon webbing with a metal carabiner hook on the front. People normally wear them for things like emergency repelling. We wore them because they were the only thing that didn't break during buddy drags. The way they worked was your buddy would lay down on his back on the dry, soft sand of the beach. Then you would get in the position for doing bear crawls. He would reach up and grab onto your belt, and then you would drag him by bear crawling through the soft sand as fast as possible until Chief Nave told you to stop, or you just keeled over and died. There were about a half a dozen variations of this that we did, always carrying or dragging somebody through the sand as fast as possible. With any of these workouts, you could usually tell that you were about two-thirds done because people would start vomiting or passing out from the exertion. This was expected. If it didn't suck, you were probably holding back, and if you were caught doing that or even suspected of it, you would be tortured relentlessly. If we didn't consistently improve on every timed event, week after week, we could be dropped from the program. A good time this week just meant that you had to be even faster next week. I had a panicked, sort of hunted feeling the first few weeks I was there. In order to earn my place, I had to put out, basically destroy myself every day at each of these workouts, one after another. I couldn't relax or coast through anything, but I was barely hanging on. I was a terrible swimmer, and the two miles per day in the water crushed me every time. Everything I did was focused on recovering, getting stronger and faster, and stacking the deck as much as possible in my favor. I slept, ate, and generally lived for the sole purpose of making it through the next day and getting a tiny step closer to the final goal. The thought that if everything wasn't dialed in right, I may not make it, was haunting. If I didn't perform, I was done. Gone, like so many others. But over the first month or two in the brown shirts, something changed. For one, I was improving in the water at an astonishing rate. I was working my way across the lap lanes at the pool, which were divided according to swimming ability. All the way to the left were the slowest guys, and as you went to the right, the swimmers were increasingly fast. Naturally, I started furthest to the left, but within a few weeks, I was progressing through towards the right. The great coaching in the pool was paying off. I had been rolled into the brown shirts for failing a thousand meter swim in full uniform and boots by one minute. After six weeks of working with Instructor Giesel in the pool, Chief Nave made me do that same swim again. I passed it by over 10 minutes. I had made more progress in six weeks than in the past year of suffering. The second thing was that I was finally understanding what that bud student had told me when I first got there. It didn't matter. What I finally realized was that even if I was dehydrated, even if I was sleep-deprived, hungover, or sore, I was still going to do the workout and I'd somehow make it through. Fresh, well-rested, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, 
the workouts would suck. Exhausted and aching with a two sizes too large wetsuit, the workouts would suck. In the end, it didn't make a difference. With this knowledge, alongside the gift of better swim technique, I was able to relax, knowing that whatever the next day brought, I would handle it. My stress response had shifted away from threat and fully toward challenge because I had finally developed a strong sense of predictability and control. This was a new level of freedom for me. I finally felt like I was unbreakable. Not at all because it didn't hurt anymore or I could breeze through the workouts, but because I had hit bottom so many times that I finally realized that no matter what, I was going to keep going anyway. It didn't matter how much it hurt. This training process taught me what it feels like to hit bottom and suffer. I learned what kind of person I was when things got really bad, and I knew those things about my fellow teammates as well. That's valuable information, and you can only learn it the hard way. To know it, you have to pay the price and live it. For those two years or so until I finished the brown shirts and went on to my final phase of swig selection, I was never ready for a swim. It was never a comfortable experience. I was fortunate in a way because I was in an environment where it didn't matter whether I was ready or whether I felt like doing it. I had no choice. Over our lifetimes, as years of experiences accumulate, we can begin to formulate a universal lesson. No matter how many bad things you went through in the past, you were still alive when they were over. This isn't something that you consciously decide, really. It's something that you teach a deeper part of your brain through practice. You have to know it, not just know the words for it. As this settles in, it begins to alter both stages of the stress appraisal process. You're more likely to accurately understand the scope of what is happening, and you'll know that no matter how it plays out, you'll have the capacity to handle it, even if things go badly. This shifts your sense of control away from needing external events to occur in a certain way to knowing that regardless of how those events go, you can still dictate your own response to them. Once you know that even the worst-case scenario is manageable, you gain freedom. This requires a critical shift in perspective. The world does not happen to you. You're not a passive bystander. You're an active participant, consciously deciding your own path in life, of your own volition. So the next time you burn in, remember that failure struggle, and suffering can provide an opportunity. It's an earned experience, an investment, and a lesson that helps to create a more accurate and effective stress appraisal in the future. At some point, your mind will know that you've been there and done that, even when you're in the middle of something awful, and you can calmly and rationally move forward with the benefit of hard-earned knowledge. By letting go of your need for things to happen in a particular way, you gain the ability to accept and work with them as they are. You'll know that it doesn't matter what the world throws at you because you've got what it takes to handle it, no matter how much it hurts. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a review and share it with somebody that you think would appreciate it. Please go to buildingelite.com where you can learn more about training for special operations, download a sample chapter of our book, access free selection training guides, and use our assessment profile tool in order to see how your physiological profile compares to what's needed to succeed in special operations selection.